I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. Here we go again. Another really special, special episode. My guest for today is Corinne Raba. And this for me is a very sacred interview. You will find out what my relationship is to Corinne and why, as I said, this is such a special conversation for me to have. Corinne is a recovery coach, and we talk about things such as the bravery and courage that it takes to bring someone into your home as a recovery coach to help with the process. Corinne talks about that she works with the here and now. How are the behaviors in the moment affecting you? A little bit different than the therapeutic process that happens in the therapy office or with the dietitian or the psychiatrist where you're talking about what happened or went into a behavior. Corinne is right there when it's happening. And that's a really unique gift. Another thing that we talk about, and I know this is really hard for people to think about, but restricting can be the driving force to binging and purging. Corinne had anorexia nervosa for five years, and then it shifted into bulimia nervosa. Corinne's story is not uncommon. We talk about her struggle with exercise addiction, shoplifting, so many things. I'm telling you, this is a really, really great, great show. All right, everyone, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. Do all of you ever get sick of me saying, I'm staring at the most beautiful soul right now, and I want to cry having this guest on the podcast. Today, we have Corinne Raba. Corinne, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Karen. It's great to see you too. All right, everyone. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to keep my keep from crying through this podcast because I have had the luxury of knowing Corinne for quite some time. Um, and Corinne, tell the listeners a little bit about what you do. So you're a recovery coach. The work you do is unbelievable. So can can you share with the listeners a little bit about your style of coaching and what coaching is like for you? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a summer recovery coach, um, as you said, and I've been doing it now for a little over three years. Um, 
when Carolyn Costin first came out with uh, CCI, her, her institute and the, co the coaching training, um, I was in the first group of students um, and started it then because I was working in substance abuse and had been for about 10 years. Um, and so since then, I've been doing that. I, I do both now, but I've been doing mostly the eating disorder recovery coaching. And what it is, is, you know, it's different than um, traditional therapy in the sense that we don't get into the underlying issues uh, with the client that's more in the therapeutic realm. That being said, if it comes up and they need a space to process it for a few minutes or whatever, I'm not going to say, sorry, you can't talk about that, but it's more of, all right, how is that affecting your food and redirecting them to go ahead and also take that back to their therapist. So what I do as a recovery coach is more in the here and the now. How are these things getting in your way today? How are the behaviors affecting you today? Um, and how can we help you move forward? A lot of in the moment support, a lot of text support, email support um things like that so pre-covid of course you know that's that's a factor now but pre-covid um there was there's grocery shopping together there's going to re to restaurants together going to the client's home and cooking with them doing live-ins with them right where we go and live in 24 hours a day or a partial live-in which is i stay outside of the home but come for 10 12 hours a day um and get to be with the person in their actual environment uh, and, get, and provide the support that way, not unlike a sober companion in ways um, in the substance abuse world. And Corinne, you travel all over the world doing this. You have sent me photographs of places from all over the world. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I mean, when I first started doing this, I was not expecting that, you know, there was a big part of me that thought to myself, like I had my own eating disorder for 17 years, I do not want to go live with somebody else's, you know, so um, there, there was that. But once I started to do it, it's such a, I feel like it's such a profound amount of bravery and courage on the part of the person inviting you in right? Like it's one thing when you go to treatment and you kind of step out behind the wall and you say, hey, I need some help. It's a whole other thing, I think, when somebody goes, is inviting you behind the wall, right? To be in their life and be in their home and be in their relationships and their job and that type of thing to see where the actual eating disorder is, um, you know, it's climbing up the walls at the, you know, at home and it's banging on the cabinets and it's, you're there with the partners and the children and, the person on their own, right? And just being able to travel all over and help people from all walks of life is, it's, it's, a, it's an honor, I feel like, for me. How do you determine, or is this determined by the client, whether a live-in is necessary, partial, one meal a day? Like, how do you make that determination? I'm assuming as I'm asking this, it's how we used to determine what level of care somebody needed when they were calling, you know, the center to be like, do I, you know, we decide this is residential. Nope, this is partial hospitalization. Nope, this is intensive outpatient. How about for, for coaching? Yeah, it varies. So, you know, sometimes we'll get calls for people who are only interested in a live-in, right? Like they, that's why, that's why they're, they're wanting a coach. That's why they're calling me. Um, and other times it's, I've been working with the client for a while and it's like, Hey, this feels like maybe a place where I could come there and help you. Like maybe there's some more support that needs to be provided in that sense. Right. 
and sometimes they're not open to it, right? And sometimes it's it's scary and understandably so. Um, sometimes they warm up to it. Sometimes they're like, sometimes it spurs them into doing more work on their own, you know, to kind of have that idea of someone coming into my house. Um, it's like, no thanks. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to step on the gas a little bit here and, and do my work. Um, but, you know, for the most part, people have been pretty open to it when it's suggested. Um, and like I said, other times it's, it's people are calling for that reason only. Yeah. I, I think that maybe to explain to listeners why I feel such beautiful tears welling up in my, in my eyes right now, as I'm looking at you and having you as a guest on my podcast is because Corinne, I know you because when I was the clinical director out at Montanito in Los Angeles, 11, 12, 13 years ago, you were just finishing up your treatment. You and I used to sit on the swing when you were struggling and we would talk. Yep. And this is why I, I, first of all, why I have the podcast. You just said to the listeners, you had your eating disorder for 17 years and look at where you're at now. Evidence of full recovery being possible. So I, I just wanted to say, you know, to everybody like this, this is a powerful moment. I have interviewed many guests that I've worked with in a professional capacity, colleagues, peers, but not somebody that I helped with their eating disorder, I don't think. That's powerful. Yeah, I mean, you have always been such a pivotal person in my recovery as well. You know, you came kind of towards the end at a very difficult time for me, definitely, and you stepped in and filled a role that needed to be filled. Um, and there's always been a huge, huge place in my heart for you. I was so excited to see you today. Oh my God, I can't wait to see her. And it's so funny. Like there's one, there's a few things I remember about you from Montanito. And one of them is when you first, when I first met you and from then on, it was like, you always wore like white or light colored, like flowy pants. Do you know what I mean? And I used to think to myself, like, that is confidence. Like, I don't know who this person is, but she's amazing. Like that's confidence, right? Like that's confidence in eye-hand coordination. That's <laughs> confidence in equilibrium. That's confidence in eating ability, like everyday activity ability. And I, I want what she has. So I was super grateful that you came into my life and it's, it's crazy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I remember those talks on the swing. I just want to say that was an LA thing, the white, because now on the East Coast, all I wear is black. So I guess I my my style is determined by the climate. Makes sense though, right? White, Los Angeles, always warm. Anyway, I digress. Let's talk a little bit though, because yes, you and I worked together on that capacity. And Corinne, 17 years that you struggled. How is it for you now working, doing overnights, going to the supermarket, hearing clients engaging in behaviors? Is it triggering? Is it, is it empowering for you to say, oh my gosh, I, I've, I've been there, done that? Like, what is this like for you? Yeah, you know, it's not triggering. Um, I think that it's pretty powerful, right? Like, because I get to sort of walk with somebody and sit with people 
in their struggle and a struggle that I know really well. Obviously, I don't know theirs. Um, you know, when I first meet them, they teach me about that, but I, I remember my own, right? And so I can kind of drop into, oh my gosh, I get it. You know, like I understand that. I remember something that felt like that. Um, and, you know, to be able to live in with somebody and see it happening and be able to support them in that way is, um, like I said before, I think it's just an honor, right? Like I don't find it triggering. I think, you know, in the beginning when I first um, left Mont Montanito for like the third time, right? Um, and that was the final time when I met you. I kind of had a feeling that I wanted to work with eating disorders at some point, but I wasn't so sh quite sure. Uh, but I knew I was too close, right? Like it was too close to the fire for me. So um, I worked in substance abuse and I think I gave myself plenty of time. Like I gave myself a good enough buffer uh, between my own and somebody else's to be able to now do this work and be, and be okay and just show up for them um, and not sort of take it on, if that makes sense. What, what do you think? And, you know, I know going, we're, we're sort of like going, keep going backwards now. We're going back into your, your eating disorder. But again, I think recovery coaches, you are right in the line of fire. And I mean, no disrespect to clients when I use that expression, um, but you're right at the front line. And so I'm wondering what was the hardest behavior for you to give up in your own eating disorder? And I guess maybe that's when I was wondering, is, are those things triggering for you when, you when you're in the moment with a client when they're doing that? Well, I think that as far as the hardest behavior to give up, I think it was kind of in a triage type of situation. Um, you know, by the time I landed in treatment, the, the house on fire, so to speak, was, was my binging and purging. Um, and that was pretty rampant and it was really bad. And I was, you know, going to the supermarket and stealing food and, um, you know, many, many, many times got caught, right? Um, never got arrested or anything like that, thankfully, but did, did get caught many times and had a good talking to and all of those things. And, um, you know, and the binging and purging was really bad at that point. And so um, it kind of, I feel like it went in tears, you know, like the binging and purging was the thing that kind of got stopped in treatment. But underneath that, of course, there was the restricting um, that was driving the binging and purging from the start. And so that was difficult. And underneath that, I feel like was probably the hardest thing for me. And that was my exercise. Um, that was kind of like, I remember at Montanito them saying to me, like, this is the crack in the dam that we all have our thumb on. And if we move away, it's going to blow the whole thing down was my, was my exercise, my inability to stop because I'd always been an athlete. And by the time my eating disorder grabbed hold of my activity, um, my movement, it, it, that was um, really, really, really hard. And I had to stop for like completely for a very long time to sort of create the space to heal my relationship with, with that. But to answer your question, like I think it was just, you know, again, it, it was kind of a triage. Yeah. Can you say, and, and I want to be very clear, every single person is unique, individual, their behaviors, their recovery process. So there is no one fit all treatment. 
I know that clients struggle a lot with exercise and their biggest fear is that a treatment provider is going to say, you can never exercise again, which is not from my perspective, a good clinical intervention, because that's just putting you in another extreme. And there are also healthy ways to exercise for you. Cause I'm imagining clients being like, well, I wonder how long she stopped. Do you remember how long you stopped exercising for and how you reincorporated it? Yeah. And I get asked that a lot. How long, how long is this going to take? Right? Like how long did you have to stop? Um, you know, I think it's it's difficult for me to say exactly how long it was, um, but I can kind of tell you that, you know, I had to stop for as long as it took for me to evaluate my intentions behind my movements. And when my intentions changed, that's when I kind of knew I was able to start coming back in and trying again, right? Like when my intention behind my my movement, my, my exercise, whatever was, I have to burn that those calories off or I have to you know watch my weight or not allow my weight to go up or whatever if it was eating disorder related then I didn't do it right when my intention started to shift to I just feel like I want to move like I want to go outside I want to get some air I want to I enjoy this thing right then I was able to start incorporating it back in but until that started to shift uh, I couldn't I just couldn't because I knew and I knew myself and I knew my personality and I knew my eating disorder and I knew that it would come back in and grab hold of it and, and not let go. Um, and so I think it was more of just not so much a timeline as an intention evaluation. I'm wondering, and you know, I, I never want to do any kind of like a scare tactic and say, well, if you start with anorexia, you're automatically going to, because again, everybody is, is, everyone is different. There is never a one size fits all, no pun intended. But you said that by the time you got to Montanito, the most, the, the, the most severe behaviors were the binging and purging. So did you start with anorexia, then pivot into binging and purging? Because I don't know if clients really hear it. Like when, tr when treatment providers say, you are one step away from binging and purging when you are in anorexia because you're starving your body. So is that how it went for you, anorexia? And again, please, everybody, everybody has their own their own path. So I'm, I'm not making any truths or any, you know, definitive statements. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've, you know, everybody has their own story, but that was absolutely mine. Yeah. hundred percent. I, I started off, I was about 15. Um, and I started restricting and I did that for about solely restricting. And then of course the exercise came in for about five, six years. Um, and then I started binging and purging, like you said, because I was in a deprived place. I was starving. Um, and I remember, I remember the first time it happened and, um, I, you know, our bodies take over, right. They're trying to protect us. Um, they're trying to keep us from starving, um, and from dying. And so that part of our brain takes over and we can't stop. And then the fear kicks in from the eating disorder and I was purging, um, yeah. And so that kind of became an adjunct, right? Like that was anorexia adjacent at that point. And then uh, the binging and purging just became so big that I just couldn't control it. 
Not that I could control any of it, of course, right? I mean, it was all in, in control of me at that point, but um, but the binging and purging just just took off. Yeah. Do you feel comfortable speaking a little bit to the stealing only because I think so many more clients than present with it are actually shoplifting food and there's a lot of shame attached to it. It is part of the eating disorder. You know, I myself am not a liar, but I lied all the time in my eating disorder. You are not a thief, but the eating disorder to hide evidence and things like that had you go that far. So could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's true. You know, I think that, um, I, you know, like you said, you're not a liar, but you lied in your disorder, right? And I'm not a thief, but I stole in my disorder, um, you know, because I think that it was, hold on one second. It's okay. Can you hear him? We can, and it's beautiful. We've had dogs on the podcast before, so do not. I'm sure he'll probably stop in a second, but I just wanted to make sure. So yeah, I didn't, it, it wasn't right away. Like I didn't start stealing food right away. Um, I, I, I worked up to it. Like, I think I couldn't, I didn't, I couldn't understand, or I couldn't wrap my head around how I was going to sustain that part of my disorder and the amount of food that I was binging and purging on, you know? And so, and I think there, there was this part of my brain that, that twisted it around and said, if you're going to get rid, rid of it, why are you paying for it? Like it was that sort of like crafty, manipulative, insidious voice that came in and was like, why are you doing that? That doesn't make any sense. You're working hard and you're making money and you're going to spend it on something that you're just purging. Like that doesn't make any sense. And that made sense to me because of where I was in my disorder. So I was like, all right, well, I'll just try stealing it then. You know, like it was kind of this dialogue, you know, like you have the eating disorder self and the healthy self dialogue that goes on. But it was this other voice that came in of course, it was the eating disorder, but just wearing a different mask at that point. But I was like, all right, I'll try. And the first few times I got away with it, um, I got away with it for a while. And that just sort of kept the momentum going, right? Just sort of accelerated the behavior. I have clients that steal food for, for, for multiple reasons. And this is why I'm glad that we're talking about it because there is a lot of shame attached to it. I have clients that do it because they don't want their family members seeing it on the credit card bill. I see clients do it because they're too embarrassed to go up to the checkout line with so much food. And again, just like we said, these are not people, you, anyone doing that are not robbers, stealers, you know, law-breaking people this is part of the disorder. How did it feel when you got caught? And, and I'm asking because I know a lot of clients think I'll never get caught. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was scary at first. I was afraid, oh my God, like I'm going to get arrested. Like they're going to call my mom. Like I'm going to be in jail, you know, for stealing food um, from the supermarket. Luckily I didn't. Luckily they, that it never resulted in that. But and in a way, I think that because that didn't happen, I kind of thought like, okay, all right, well, I'll just keep doing it. You know, like if I'm just going to get a stern talking to from somebody, okay, you know, then I'm just going to go to a different store and I'm going to do it there, right? Because I'm not allowed back at that one now. 
Um, and so that, that was kind of the, like the trajectory of it. I got caught, I wasn't allowed back. Um, and then there was one store I remember I went into and I got caught and they took me upstairs to like the manager's office place, whatever. And there were like, it, what felt like 10 people in there. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's my memory of it. Um, and the woman in there, I feel like she must have known something um, that was going on, or I don't know, maybe she just assumed and said, you know, are you okay? Like, are you all right? You know, and I was like, um, I guess so. And she's, and she asked me if I was like on medication and like all of this stuff. And I was like, why is she asking me all these questions? Like, um, but I think she must have known at that point, right? And she was like, just go home take care of yourself and stay away from here for a while, you know? So she kind of took some, um, she was more sensitive about it at that point. And um, I don't even know what had me stop. I think it was when I went into treatment, when I went into Montanito, I think that's actually when it stopped because I was forced to stop like everything else. Yeah. And I appreciate your saying that it is like anything else, similar to any eating disorder behavior. Once you do it once and you're like, oh, that felt pretty good. Whether And good might not be the, the perfect terminology. So I want to I wanna be clear about that. But okay, I can do it again. I'm going to do it more. And it's like any other behavior. If you feel good for a moment doing something, who doesn't want more of that? Like I said, I, there's a lot of people and it's not talked about very often. Oh, absolutely. Can you speak a little bit to what it is like when you are working with, well, let me ask you about that. Have you had any clients that you've found out are stealing food? And have you been able to say to them, like, you know, using your own story or things like that? Yeah, nobody that I've worked with in person. There have been a couple of clients that I've had virtually who who have you know come out and said I've I've been stealing food. Um, and then of course I I you know I come back and tell them my story. I think it helps to neutralize it a little bit, you know, because there is a lot of shame around that. I think that feels like to people it did for me too. Like it's taking it to another level that's not a part of the eating disorder. Like that's some sort of behavior that is just um, on its own but it's not right. Like, I mean, it's all, it's all attached and, you know, one thing seems to be born from the other and the other and the other. And then here you are, there I was right. Sort of not only um, struggling with anorexia and then binging and purging and exercising, but I was also stealing then at that point, by the time I was um, showing up at Montanito. I want to point out, and I, I always use my own experience that there is a lot of shame attached to behaviors. And there were some behaviors and rituals that I did. And I think I've said this before on the podcast, that if people really knew, they would be shocked. Unfortunately, the eating disorder is such a private relationship between you and the eating disorder. And the eating disorder part of you gets more and more strength and louder and louder and louder that the world you've created makes sense to you. In spite of what you're doing, that hindsight being 2020, you're like, whoa. So it is, it, it is unbelievable some of the things that people come up with. 
Yeah, it's true. And I, and it's so true what, what you just said about it, it makes sense, you know, kind of, like I said, I, I was able to make sense of why would I spend my money on this food? You know, like it, it, you, you come in and I think you rationalize it and to a place that it makes sense because you have to, you know, like in order to sustain that level of, um, of the disorder, you know, I think that there has to be a way where it kind of, at least it did for me, right, where I had to make sense of it. Um, and that's how I did it. Do you feel that because you're recovered, clients work better with you? Also, did you feel, this is like a two-part question, because you worked with, you know, most of us at Montanito were recovered. And so did you feel from your experience working with recovered staff, like clinicians, dietitians, psychiatrists, is a better fit. And I will say this on every podcast, I have worked with many clinicians who have never had an eating disorder, who are fantastic. I'm just referring to this particular situation. I think that for my own clients, it absolutely um, reassures them. I think it gives them hope. You know, many of them had never have never met anybody who has been recovered. Not met, uh, a couple of them have never even heard of it. Um, you know, so they're coming to help for, for maintenance, for management of their disorder. And then we start having conversation and they start saying things like, I had no idea that that was even a thing, you know, or I just heard about that because I just discovered Carolyn Coston or something, right? Something along those lines. Um, so I think in um, the sphere of my work, it helps to sort of provide some hope that I'm sitting, you know, uh, across from them and, and that's my story. Um, my own personal story, it's kind of a funny one, but I think that, you know, I was always adamant that I was not going to work with somebody who had not had an eating disorder. I was like, I just, they're not going to be able to understand, blah, blah, blah. And when I first went to Montanito, um, and this is another guest that you've had on your show. I know who you're going to say. Yeah, yeah. For those of you who didn't hear it, Anna Kowalski. Yeah, I met Anna and I was begged Carolyn. I was like, can I please have Anna as my therapist? Can I please have Anna as my therapist? Um, and Carolyn was like, well, no, I don't, you know, whatever. She had, you know, that you guys have all your reasons for everything. Um, and so I, um, so I got somebody else and Anna didn't tell me for a long time that she had never had an eating disorder. And it came out in a group and I was sitting in the chair and I swear, Karen, I almost fell out of the chair. I was like, what do you mean, you know? And so in that moment, I think it was a valuable thing for me because it, it showed that it, it, it's not necessarily that someone has or has not had an eating disorder. It's can they show up and, and relate to the person, right? Can you relate to the pain that, that, that the person is in, right? Because that's what it is really. Um, and so I would say, both. I would say both. Both are true. You know, that absolutely it was super important for me to have those role models and, you know, people who had struggled and recovered. And then it was also important for me to see that I could also um, relate and attach and feel connected to someone who, who had it. Yeah. I, I said when I did Anna's podcast, everybody, you hear me say all the time, I have sat with clinicians who have never had an eating disorder and hands down are the best eating disorder therapists I've ever worked with. We're talking to her today. Her name is Anna Kowalski. <laughs> Every time I say that, that's the image I have in my mind. 
So true. Yeah. I think what you said, though, is the most important. Somebody who will sit, be present with you, will hear your pain and suffering. That's, it's not about have you had an eating disorder? It's about do you know how to sit with somebody who is in somewhat of an existential crisis and hold it with them, not for them, with them? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Carolyn always says it's a soul crisis, right? Some people who are struggling with an eating disorder, I think it's so true. Um, And I think that experience at that time for me with, you know, in this case with Anna was so important because I, I was very closed off to anybody who hadn't. And had I been closed off to her, I would have lost um, or not had the opportunity to learn a lot. I'm wondering, you know, I, I love when Carolyn would call it a soul disorder. Um, I agree from my experience, that's how it felt like my soul was suffering. How do you navigate through life today when there is a lot of suffering? You and I talked earlier, you've had some difficult losses and challenges over the last year. We are in a pandemic. You are no longer you know, traveling, or maybe you are, but not the way you used to with clients, not seeing friends politically, racism, do I need to go on? How, if you spent 17 years using your eating disorder to get through challenging situations in life, how are you navigating, Corinne? It's a great question, right? And obviously that's why you're sitting in that chair. Um, But I think that for me at this point, it is still the thing that I need to do in times like this and in times like I've, you know, with the loss that I've had this year and just everything going on, you know, uh, politically and, and, and all of the things, right? Like you mentioned, I think that the thing that I still need to do and, and try to do now is the thing that was hardest for me then, which is to reach out to people who can, um, who can like we were just saying, right, sit, sit with me in, in that pain and in those times where it feels like, oh, I need somebody here, you know? Um, and I need somebody with me right now, or I need somebody to listen or witness or just hear me out. Um, and that is the thing that I, I do now, at least I try to do now. I'm not always successful at it. You know, that's still kind of my work in progress as well as being vulnerable with people, um, and reaching out when I need support, but that's how I do it. That's the thing that kind of helped get me out of my eating disorder, at least start to take some steps in that direction. And that's, and that's what I need to do now still today. I think it's interesting. People often think, how long am I going to have to use these skills throughout my recovery process until I'm done? I don't know if that made sense to everybody, but made sense in my mind. And I say forever. These are the skills that keep us grounded, keep us connected, keep us from turning to maladaptive coping skills as opposed to healthy coping skills. All of the things that we try to implement and and help clients to learn to utilize are life skills. It is not just until... 
Corinne, it's not as if now that you're recovered, you don't need to reach out support for support. It's how you have stayed recovered because you have implemented these skills into your life ongoing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the challenges and, and the struggles that we have in our eating disorder are still the challenges and the struggles that we have out of our eating disorders, right? It's just kind of finding ways to navigate around and implement them still, you know, and the reaching out was always the hardest for me and it, and it still is. Um, and it's also the most important, um, you know, for, for me. And I tell my clients too, all the time, like, Hey, this is not easy for me either. You know, this is hard. And this was the hardest part for me. And it is one of the most pivotal keys and will be forever. Yeah. Do you feel like there was a pivotal moment in your recovery process? Do you feel like it was gradual? Yeah, I think it was gradual. You know, I think it was, I, well, there are a few pivotal mo moments, I think, that I can look back and go, okay, that a light bulb went, went off there, you know, definitely. But I think it was more of a gradual process in the sense of like, I started to kind of go through life and implement these skills that I was learning. Um, and I would turn around and go, oh, oh, I just went through that thing um, where before I might use behaviors to, to help me, right, quote unquote, help me through it. And I didn't this time, right? Like it was more like sort of an awareness of, oh, wait a second. When I look back, I didn't do that thing this time you know, and it was gathering more experience of that, I think, and putting those together until they kind of stretched out and stretched out. It's interesting when you made the comment about light bulb moments. I know that I had a few that were really important in my recovery process. And I also know that I didn't, I didn't act on those moments when they happened. I can specifically remember light bulb moments where I went, oh, wow, the eating disorder is no longer working for me in the way that I thought. Like, I didn't think that clearly, like without that dialogue. And then I still went out and used my eating disorder because I was a little freaked out that I had just come to this aha moment. And I think part of it is because I was like, well, what will work for me? I think, I think that was a frightening thought for me. Meaning if I let go of the eating disorder, what is going to be there in place to catch me if I fall? So I, I just thought about that. There are so many light bulb moments where I'm like, hmm, let me ponder on this by using a few eating disorder behaviors before I actually start acting on them. It's a long journey, right, Corinne? Th this is not an overnight thing. No, it's a long, hard journey, you know, and I think that it is, you know what though, Karen, I mean, I think that at this point um, in my life and where, and where I'm at now, and I've said it before, and I think that I can really actually embody it at this point um, where, where, where I'm at, which is a gratitude for, for, for my eating disorder, for the struggle that I had, for what I went, went through, the people that I met, all of that. Without it, I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't be who I am today, right? Like I think it taught me a lot and I had a lot of um, 
you know, shame and regret about all the time I lost, right? Like the time, the time, the 17 years, and I missed out on all of these things. And like, this was the talk in my head, right? This was the dialogue in my head of, um, you know, having to drop out of school and go back to school and all of this. And yet, what I can look back now and honestly say and see is that all of that time, right, was not wasted or lost or anything, um, but rather it was, I was in a different kind of school at that point, right? Like it was more of like a, like a life school, like I was learning about myself um, and I was learning how to be in the world and be in struggle and be in grief and be in, you know, all of the things that are, are hard and good as well and neutral as well, right? and show up and be completely present and not have to um, distract or harm myself in the midst of those things. And that I, you know, I wouldn't trade for, you know, a, a perfect timelined life um, for me. I love that you said that because I have had when I used to run family groups or do family sessions and parents would say, I'm devastated in all the things that they're missing out on. And I say, yes. And again, like you said, what they are acquiring here is going to have them possibly surpass other things in life. Meaning you're right, Corinne, I, by the way, I don't wish my eating disorder on anyone. And I know you don't either. I know you don't. I would never say to anybody like, well, think of what you're going to do with this because nobody wants to go through an eating disorder to get something from it. What you and I have chosen though to take from it has made me the person I am today. And I don't think I'd be this person had I not gone through the struggles of my eating disorder. And part of that is going through the struggles of the, of the shame I had about who I was as a human being. I actually had shame about my presence in the world. And I had to go through the eating disorder. I had to go through all the work to actually come out on the other side and now be a bit narcissistic. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I say that all the time. I'm really not, but sometimes I am. No, but do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. If I had never gone through the work, I think my life, I would have been li living my life on like a dimmer switch and it would have been dimmed my entire life. I also want to say though, Corinne, that's a choice that you and I and other guests that I've had on this podcast have chosen to take. And I know that's a touchy word with clients with eating disorders. We chose to do all the hard work, keep moving forward, fall a lot, get back up, keep moving forward and start listening to ourselves and trusting ourselves. That's the choice we made. That's the choice you made. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a tricky word. I just, I, I was talking a lot about choice actually the other day. And I think it's a, you know, oftentimes when people are really struggling, it's not a word they want to hear, um, you know, because it doesn't feel like a choice. It's, you know, a lot of times, right. It feels like I just, I can't, I don't have choice in this. Right. And I think it's important to sort of remember that. And it was for me too, right. Like at that point, to not only discover but then remember that it's like no you 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 do you have choice 
one just feels instrumentally harder you know one just feels exponentially harder right like it's just it's one of those things but it doesn't mean it's not there it's not on the table right so to speak um it is it's just it's going to bring a lot of discomfort and it's going to bring a lot of questioning and it's going to bring a lot of things that maybe we're trying you know you're trying to avoid um at this point but it doesn't mean that the choice isn't there and um you know i think that often sometimes right people get in in such a a state that they you know you need to go to treatment to to sort of have help to make that choice right um and like like i did and yet we get shown and we get guided and we get advised and we get all of these things and you know for me such a huge huge part of my recovery were the relationships with all of you you know at montanito like you all started to become much more important to me than my eating disorder ever was and showing up and saying that i engaged in a behavior and telling having to tell you or having to tell anna or having to tell carolyn that would have felt worse um than not doing the behavior like the discomfort that that would have brought or did bring um that paled in comparison to how bad it would have felt to have to tell you at you know all of you at that point that i had done something or slipped or whatever and i think having that foundation of relationship um created the space for me to really sort of start to stand up on my own it asked you to say what relationship is more valuable to you the relationship with the people that are here to help you and support you and care for you or the relationship with the eating disorder not an easy choice as you said these choices are never easy but that is the choice go into your value system what do you value do you value relationship the eating disorder is taking you away from that do you value honesty eating disorder is taking you away from that do you value confidence believe it or not the eating disorder is taking you away from that even if you have the myth that it is making you feel confident absolutely yeah the value conversation is such a big one you know i think it's such a valuable one too right you know because it's like okay so what are your values what do you stand for and when you're engaging in your eating disorder are you in alignment with those things or not um and if the answer is no what do you need what do you need to help you kind of make a different choice um and sometimes the answer isn't clear and that's where we come in right um you as 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 a therapist and and me as a coach and go okay how can we how can we help move you through this um you know in different ways coming from different angles um of course but you know it's it's what's important um to the person you know and again is it is it in line with who you are or not Mhm. Well said. Well said, Corinne. I am sorry to say that we are starting to wind down. I do have a final question for you though that has nothing to do with eating disorders. Before I ask you though, is there anything that I didn't ask that you'd like to say or anything that you just wanted to add before we started winding down? I don't think so i mean i think i'm just you know maybe just to express my my gratitude to you for having me and my gratitude to you for everything 
um, that you've given to me over the years. You know, it's um, I, I when I hadn't talked to you for so long when you moved back to Boston from from here from LA, and then I I reached out to you like a little over a year ago, I think. And you called me. You're on the phone with me for an hour, and you talked. And I was like, it was like I I just talked to you the last the week before, you know. So um, I'm just so so grateful to you and and your role um, in my life and my own recovery. Like I said, you're definitely one of those people that that made a, a huge huge impact. So thank you for that. Thank you, Corinne. This the conversation that you and I had a year ago. All these moments are what happen when you're present and you're not in an eating disorder. The reason you and I connected like we had like we had spoken just the week before is we just didn't have all that external noise. We could just be, right? So true. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I adore you. Okay. Corinne, my final question to you, my darling, is if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? I love this question so much. And I, I think that um, it would probably just say, can relate and my phone number and that's it. <laughs> that's a phenomenal answer. I mean, it's simple. Nobody's going to be reading a paragraph in a bathroom stall, right? It's like, can relate my phone number. That's it. I love ending the podcast right there. That was it. The perfect ending. (laughs) Corinne, from the bottom, bottom of my heart, thank you for doing this with me. I, it means the world for me to see you and for us to be in this chapter in our lives together. So thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Anytime. Careful what you say. (laughs) Because I might ask for more. All right, everyone, that's a wrap for another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Stay safe. Bye-bye. It's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.